Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. The message today is the burial. And I learned, um, I'll backtrack a second, uh, a lesson today in assuming, not making any assumptions, I did originally plan to have uh, slide uh, projector. As many of you know, often when I do speak, I like to incorporate some uh, visual elements uh, to the presentation. So I did assume that there would be uh, a laptop, but there is a projector, but there's no laptop. I didn't bring my laptop, so I take responsibility for that. So there are parts of my message that I'm going to probably have to kind of pass through or whatnot. We'll, we'll make do. We'll, we'll be fine. We'll do um, what we have to do as the Spirit leads. Um, the burial. So we're going to talk about the burial. So first I do want to begin by, and it's interesting, uh, Pastor Adrian touched on it in his prayer uh, when he was praying for my mother that, uh, you know, over the last year it's been very difficult uh, for her and for our entire family. As many of you are aware, last year in uh, January, the end of January, my grandmother uh, passed away. Many of you are very familiar with uh, my grandmother. She was 100 years old, about 100 and a half. She would have been 101 in July, and um, that's amazing. She lived a long life, a very long, successful life. Obviously, after a while, the last few years were uh, quite pressing, quite challenging, all the various, um, you know, not so much ailments, but just a situation where when the body just really kind of, you know, breaks down and she wasn't able to do certain things in terms of whether it's changing, feeding, and things of that nature. And it took a major, major, major toll on my mom, who was, of course, her primary uh, caregiver. And then, of course, my dad, who was uh, up there in age as well. Um, I believe, yeah, probably about just nine years, actually, separating my grandmother and my father. So my dad was 91. And once again, as many of you uh, know, um, Pastor, or well, he was Pastor uh, Joshua Scarlett, he passed away um, in July in the summer, and um, yeah, my father. So in a short period of time, in a few months, um, my mother, she lost the two people that was closest to her. So it's been difficult over the last little while, um, you know, losing a loved one, uh, obviously in my case a, a grandmother, and of course a father much closer is never an easy thing. But, of course, these things are, as we like to say, natural occurrences. These things happen uh, in life. Um, Regarding my dad, it was an interesting, well, I wouldn't say necessarily interesting, but how everything pretty much unfolded. As I said, he was 91 years old, so he lived, you know, a long life, a long, full life. Um, Five children with my mother. Uh, He had two children uh, previously. He was married um, previously. And over the last... Yeah, three to five years, I would say, were um, very challenging, very challenging health-wise. He had a whole slew of different um, things. It was prostate cancer, and, you know, as you reach a certain age, of course, the body breaks down, you know, liver failure and kidney and a whole bunch of different things. Um, it's, it's a really good thing. I would say about three years ago, or my family and I, we're in Oshawa now, and one of the main reasons we moved out to Oshawa, we were previously living in Scarborough, was to live, or to move closer to my parents, to, to their house. And right now we live, um, it's about a five-minute drive, probably six minutes at the most uh, from mom. And um, it's been really great over the last, you know, few years being in a position to, you know, contribute and help out and, you know, whether it's little things like buying groceries or just little visits and things of that nature. Um, but definitely over the last six months, I would say, brothers and sisters of my father's uh, life, um, yeah, it was really difficult to see him in that state of deterioration as he, you know, slowly began to, you know, wind down. But um, he was always so positive. His glass was always half full, and he would always praise God, and he was just, you know, filled with this great joy. And um, he went into the hospital. There were so many different hospital visits. Um, in the last two years, I would say, Oh boy, the amount of times that we had to even call the emergency 911 for various things. I mean, probably well over a dozen. Um, his, the last week of his life, as I recall, 
on the Wednesday, we took him to the hospital on the way by ambulance on the Wednesday night. Um, I saw him on the Thursday, and this was one of the most difficult things for me personally that I had ever experienced in all of my life, just to see him in this particular state of agitation where it was just me and my mom in the room with him. Um, I think at this point he was transferred to the ICU, and he was just so it's so hard to explain. He was just so agitated and speaking things incoherently and moving around and shaking. And it was, to be honest with you, even for me being there and looking at my mom, I was almost in a state of shock that mom was kind of, you know, she was strong and holding it together. Because the only reason why I personally didn't break down was because mom, she was, you know, she was strong and she was, you know, there and we were praying over him and whatnot. And then later on they came and they sedated him and gave him, you know, certain drugs and all those things. And um, as I said, that was on Thursday, and, um, you know, there was obviously a series of events, and then he went into, um, you know, he was on a life support system, and he passed on, it was Monday, I remember, I received a call, I was home on a, on, well, Sunday night, technically it was, it was after midnight, so it was, after, it was on the Monday, um, I was the main point of contact at the hospital. We were always there almost 24-7, but this time, you know, we, we were home, we came back home. And uh, they had called and said that his levels had dropped drastically. At this time, he was on life support, or actually we had pulled the life support, um, you know, as was, you know, we'd, as we discussed as a family. And um, so it was just all a matter of time. So the hospital called when they noticed that the levels had kind of dropped drastically, saying that, you know, he probably doesn't have that much time to live. So I got ready. This is maybe around 1.15 in the a.m. I went over to the hospital, and um, they said that he had passed um, probably about five minutes, um, five minutes ago. So I just, you know, put my hands in him, said a prayer, and, um, you know, that was that. So that was on the 3rd of July. That was Monday, July the 3rd, when my father took his last breath. Monday, July the 3rd. And then two weeks later, he was laid to rest. Exactly two weeks later, on the 14th of July, my father was laid to rest. And what lies next for Mr. Joshua Scarlett? So he died. He died on the 3rd. On the 14th, he was laid to rest. He was buried. And what lies next for Joshua Scarlett? According to our faith, brothers and sisters, the resurrection. Death, burial, and resurrection. Three pivotal anchors of the gospel message. The death, the burial, and the resurrection. Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians 15. We'll look at verse 3 and 4. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died, so we have the death, for our sins according to the Scriptures. Verse 4. And that he was buried. So that's the second installment. And that he rose again. So the third chapter, the third installment. He died, he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So there we have it once again, the three pivotal anchors, brothers and sisters, of the gospel message, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Now, it's interesting, and I'm sure you would all agree, that oftentimes we as Christians, when we look at these three pivotal anchors, we often focus on the death and, of course, on the resurrection, which is very significant. Perhaps you could even make the argument the most significant of the three. But we often overlook the burial. And why is that? Something to think, something to ponder But Why is it that, once again, we have the death, and then you have the burial, and then you have the resurrection. Why is it that we don't spend too much time focusing on the burial? 
what can we learn about the burial of Jesus Christ? What can we learn about burial in general? And what significance does it have for us in terms of our salvation? And more specifically, especially this time period that we're in right now, how does this relate to the Passover season? And how can we, as believers, as brothers and sisters in the faith, in the body of Christ, learn lessons from this burial and perhaps apply it as we venture to prepare both physically, brothers and sisters, and spiritually for the upcoming Passover season. So that's what I want to review today, the burial. And interestingly enough, if we look at the gospel in Matthew, there are ten references to the burial of Christ. There's a total of ten references in the book of Matthew, six in Mark, six in Luke, and five in John. So if we haven't, brothers and sisters, in the past taken time to consider the following, we most certainly should. How was Jesus buried? Why was he buried? And as I said earlier, what can we learn from this? Now, just before we examine the account of our Lord's burial, just to kind of set the stage, I do want to go over uh, what is called the the chronology of Christ's death burial, and resurrection, just to kind of set the stage. And it's going to be a little difficult. This is actually one of the visual elements that I did want to share on the slide that I don't have. So we're just going to have to use our thinking caps. And I'm very confident that I am, for the most part, speaking to a very spiritually mature group who's very well familiar with this. So it's not necessarily anything new that I'm bringing. But just as we begin to set the stage and discuss the burial, and of course as we look forward to the Passover season, I wanted to review this just to kind of set the stage. So there's nothing for me to show you, but I'll just kind of go over these notes here uh, kind of quickly, and we'll just kind of uh, use our uh, visuals as much as uh, we can uh, mentally. So first things first, on day number three, so this is the third day of the week, so for us this is known as Tuesday, this is the day that Christ ate an evening Passover meal with his disciples. It was the beginning of Nisan 14, according to the Jewish reckoning. And this is also when he instituted the new covenant symbols, so of course, the bread and the wine. So remember, this is uh, day number three of the week. This is when Jesus was betrayed by one of his followers, Judas. And he was arrested during the night and brought before the high priest. So we're just going to kind of go, as I said, this is the chronology of uh, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. The next day, which is day number four, nice and 14, this was what we know as crucifixion day. So he was crucified and he died around 3 p.m. And if you want to take down a corresponding scripture, we have Matthew 27, verse 46 to 50. And this was also the preparation day of the annual Sabbath, so during the Days of Unleavened Bread, which began, of course, at sunset. And you can reference Mark 15, verse 42, or Luke 23, verse 54, for reference. And Jesus' body was placed in the tomb just before sunset. So this all took place on day number four, Nisan 14. The next day, day number five, this was the high day Sabbath, the first day of the biblical feast of unleavened bread. And we know that according to John 19.31 and Leviticus 23, verse 4 to 7. This is described as the day after the preparation day, Matthew 27.62, the Wednesday night and the daylight portion of Thursday, those were the first of the three days and three nights that Yeshua's body was in the tomb. And then we move on to day number six. So this is the preparation day, day number six. So we know this to be Friday. This is the preparation day for the weekly Sabbath. And the woman, they had brought um, spices to, uh, to anoint uh, the body. Mark 16 as a reference, verse 1, Luke 23, verse 56. And the Thursday night and the daylight portion of Friday, 
that marked the second day of the three days and the three nights that Jesus was in the grave, that he was buried. And then the last day, day number seven, so this was Shabbat, this was the Sabbath. It says, the woman rested on the weekly Sabbath, of course, according to the fourth commandment, Luke 23, 56, and Exodus 20, verse 8 to 11. And we know and we understand that Jesus rose near sunset, so close to sunset is when he rose, exactly three days and three nights after his body was placed in the tomb. And of course, this was a fulfillment of Jonah's prophecy and a sign of his Yeshua's Messiahship. And lastly, the very next day, so the day after the Sabbath, day number one, this is when Jesus was seen. So he didn't rise this day. This is when he was seen near sunset the day before. So three days and three nights after being in the tomb, the very next day is when he appeared to the disciples. So this would be a little bit easier if we could kind of see um, the diagram. I actually have a perfect uh, little image here that I did uh, want to share. But once again, most of us are very familiar with this. I do want to focus mostly on the three days and the three nights. So on the, the time that he was in the tomb, the burial period of time. And if there are any questions or anything that we want to go over, we can certainly discuss after. But I do want to take a look and discuss that 72-hour period. Uh, turn with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 27. And just remember, we're focusing on the burial. And I want you to keep in mind as we go through this message, brothers and sisters, the events surrounding the burial, what we can learn from the burial, and once again, how we can apply this to our preparation for the upcoming Passover season. Matthew 27, verse 57 to 66. When the even was come, so this is the fourth day of the week, the Wednesday, if you will, just before sunset, right before the first day of unleavened bread, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. Verse 59, And when Joseph had, Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. So securing the scene there. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher. Now the next day, that followed the day of the preparation day, so day five, the first day of unleavened bread, the chief priests and Pharisees came together onto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that the deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. So I'll read that again. We remember that the deceiver, they're referring to Jesus, while he was alive, he said, after three days, I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, he is risen from the dead, so the last error shall be worse than the first. So, of course, they had men guarding the body, guarding the tomb, just in case, as we just read there, that the followers of Jesus, his disciples, will say, hey, he was resurrected, when in fact, of course, they did not believe in the resurrection and they thought that it was all a hoax and they wanted to secure the grave site to make sure that, of course, there was no funny business going on there. Verse 65, Pilate said unto them, Ye have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as ye can. So they went and made the sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting watch. I want to take a look at John 19. Just take a quick look at John's account of the burial 
of Christ. Let's look at John 19, brothers and sisters. Gospel of John 19. Let's go down to verse 38. John 19, 38. John 19:38 and after this Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus but secretly for fear of the Jews so of course Joseph who was one of the followers of Christ um, where it says here secretly but in fear of the Jews so he wasn't one of the open followers of Christ he was a follower secretly and we know, according to the scriptures, that Joseph was a rich man. He was a wealthy man. And he was also a part of the religious council. A part of actually the same very council that brought the charges and accusations against Christ. Now, we don't have any indication that Joseph was a part of that or that he agreed with that. That he was, I guess, what we would refer to in this day and age as a you know, double agent or anything of that nature. We don't have any indication of that. But nevertheless, he was a part of that same uh, council. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus, which was, in their custom, a very big deal, because according to uh, the Roman custom, they usually did not release the body of criminals. Verse 39, And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, and a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen cloth and with spices as a manner of the Jews is to bury. Now that's very interesting. Why did they bring these spices? Why were they preparing the spices to place on the body of Christ? So we all know this is a part of the embalming process to preserve the body so that the body doesn't decay. Um, especially, you know, before it's uh, finally laid to rest. But it's interesting that his disciples would do this because I don't have um, the scripture here, but I believe it's somewhere in the Psalms where it said um, that Jesus' body would not decay. His body would not decay. So, of course, it would appear that they weren't aware of that uh, particular prophecy. Uh, nevertheless, uh, verse 41, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulchre, wherein was never man yet laid. Then laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, so the sepulchre was nigh at hand. Now, this is what I want to focus on for the rest of my message. I want to focus on three main points that highlight, brothers and sisters, the significance of the burial of Jesus Christ. So three points that highlight the significance of the burial of Jesus Christ. As I said earlier, oftentimes we would focus on the death of Jesus, so how he died, why he died, the circumstances around his death. Of course, we'll focus on the resurrection because that's what brings life. But the burial, what can we learn here about the burial of Jesus Christ? So the first point is, and this is just general, so you can apply it, of course, to Jesus' burial and just general burial, Burial is a confirmation of death. So in this case, Jesus being buried was a confirmation that he was indeed dead. Um, how many of you, and I'm sure uh, most of you here, have been to a funeral, or not so much a funeral service, but specifically a burial service at a cemetery? I'm sure most of us have, right? Oftentimes during, and as I said, I, this is something that I personally experienced twice uh, in uh, last year, just a few months back. Oftentimes, the whole, you know, the funeral, so you have a funeral service and you'll have a burial and sometimes you'll have a reception. There's different components uh, to the entire funeral service. But oftentimes, it's the burial site, it's the actual burial that is the most difficult to deal with from an emotional standpoint. And why is that? As I said, Point number one, it really confirms that person has died. And you will no longer get to see that person again. If it's a funeral service, for example, and most funerals they'll have, you know, depending on the circumstances, of course, of the death, they'll have an open casket. And, you know, during the service or before the service, you'll get an opportunity to pay your respects. But once you go to the burial site, 
and the person is laid in the casket, and the casket is closed and, of course, lowered into the ground, and we know the process from there. That really finalizes everything, and you will never, in this lifetime, see that person again in that particular state. So it really, you know, finalizes things, and it's a very emotional uh, situation. I just want to read here a definition of burial, just so we can uh, make sure we're all on the same page. So this says here, burial, or interment, is the ritual act of placing a dead person or animal, uh, sometimes with objects, into the ground. This is accomplished by excavating a pitch or trench, placing the deceased and objects in it, and covering it over. Burial is often seen as indicating respect for the dead. It has been used to prevent the odor of decay, to give family members closure and prevent them from witnessing the decomposition of their loved ones, which I touched on earlier. So burial, it's a ritual. And I know that there are some that don't believe in burial. Some uh, would take another form of uh, taking care of the body after death, which is, of course, cremation. Well, that's another option. Uh, whether that's biblical or not, that could certainly be up for debate. Um, I often would say, for me personally, if burial was good enough for Jesus, then burial is good enough for me. Um, I do believe that probably in this day and age, most persons who would uh, decide to go the cremation route, um, often it could be for financial uh, reasons. It is uh, a lot uh, less expensive to go the cremation route than uh, burial. And on a side note, um, you know, last year having, you know, the experience of coordinating pretty much uh, two funerals, um, it really gave me, <laughs> opened my eyes just how expensive it is to die. Uh, it's a very serious business for so those who are in the funeral business. I mean, and of course people die all the time. Um, it's very expensive, the whole process, the ceremony, burial, uh, buying a, a casket. It's a very experienced uh, process. So one of the main purposes of burial, as, we, uh, as I said earlier, is to bring closure and to confirm that the person has actually died. In the case of Jesus, even to this date, brothers and sisters, we have persons that would believe that Jesus never died. Of course, some would say that, uh, some believe that he was never resurrected. Of course, you know, you have to believe that uh, he died. So some would say that he didn't even die. So the burial is confirmation, if we believe in, in according to the scriptures and in, in the account and what happened, that Jesus did indeed die and he was laid to rest during that 72-hour period. He was buried. And as a side note, if you take a look at Psalm 16, verse 10, and also Acts 2, verse 27, um, yeah, that's actually where we have, and I kind of touched on it earlier, the prophecies that indicate that the Lord's body would not decompose. So that's Psalm 16.10 and Acts 2, verse 27. So that's the first point in terms of the significance, brothers and sisters, of the ritualistic act of burial, is that it confirms that the individual has passed. So in this case, it was confirmation that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was indeed dead. Point number two, second point, fulfillment of prophecy. Fulfillment of prophecy. Prophecy fulfilled. Please turn with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Verse 40, a prophecy that we're all very familiar with. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This, brothers and sisters, is a specific prophecy relating to the burial of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53. Let's look at another one. Isaiah chapter 53. Verse 
Isaiah 53 and verse 3. And the interesting thing about this, this prophecy here was written over 700 years before Christ's death and resurrection. So over 700 years. Isaiah 53 verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid it as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did not esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Which was read, of course, earlier in the scripture reading. And then we jump down to verse 8. When we look at the specific prophecy referring to the burial of our Lord. So Isaiah 53 and verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And here it is, right here in verse 9. And he made his grave. He, of course, is the prophecy of the Messiah to come. He made his grave with the wicked. So this, of course, referring to Jesus who was crucified uh, between uh, two thieves, according to Mark 15, 27. And with the rich in his death, referring, of course, to Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy man, according to scriptures. And we do know that the tomb that Jesus was laid in was indeed the tomb belonging to this very Joseph, the follower of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Wow. So that's a very specific prophecy that once again was indeed fulfilled to the T nearly 700 years later. So going back a little bit, brothers and sisters, point number one was confirmation of death. And then the second point here, the fulfillment of of prophecy. And why is that important to us? Why is it important to us in terms of our faith that we see things that were prophesied of old come to fruition? How does that benefit us? Does it perhaps strengthen our faith? I would say that's probably uh, the major factor. If, for example, we were to look at an account, this is just me being hypothetical, of you know, and once again, we can use an example of the burial, where it would say three days and three nights, just like uh, Jonah in the, in the belly of the whale. And then we came to the New Testament, and then we read or we calculate or figure out that it was not three days and three nights. Perhaps it was four days or it was five days or, you know, there was something off. So there was some kind of a, I guess you can call it contradiction. If, indeed, brothers and sisters, that was the case, that would indeed have a direct effect on our faith because we'd be looking at the scriptures and they wouldn't be in sync. They wouldn't be in line. So I say that we should actually get excited. We should feel for this invigorated when we look and we see prophecies, specific prophecies that have been fulfilled according to the scriptures because it indeed does strengthen our faith. Another thing to just note here quickly in passing that many of the Jews, they didn't understand the resurrection, nor did they believe in the resurrection. So this prophecy about his burial serves as proof that indeed Jesus did die and that, of course, after three days he was resurrected according to the scriptures. Romans 6. Let's take a look at Romans 6, verse 1. Romans 6, verse 1. As we move on to the third point, highlighting the significance of the burial of our Lord and Savior, 
uh, once again, we consider this in light of the Passover season that is before us. So this here is a continuation of Romans 5, which is, of course, about the justification or being justified by faith. So breaking to the text here, Romans 6, verse 1, where it says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were what? Baptized into his death. Therefore, we are, we are what? We're buried. We are buried with him by baptism into death. Like that as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also should walk in newness of life. So we see there the correlation, brothers and sisters, between our baptism and the burial of Jesus Christ. And this highlights the third point that I would like to make regarding the significance of the burial, that we are buried with him in baptism. We are buried with Jesus in baptism. So when we come to the faith, when we get the call from God the Father, of course, and then we go through the process of repentance, which of course doesn't stop. Repentance always continues. We confess our sins. That's part of the repentance process. And we make the decision to get baptized. Usually you get an elder or minister, you go into the water, and you are put, your body goes underneath the water, not for a long period of time, perhaps for a few seconds, and then you are brought back up. And this is one of the reasons why, according to scripture, once we understand the significance of burial as it relates to our baptism, simple, you know, sprinkling of water Uh, just doesn't cut it when it comes to baptism. The whole process, even from a ritualistic, physical standpoint, of being fully immersed under the water is very significant and important. And as we just read here, the correlation between baptism and the the actual act of uh, being buried. Because when we go under that water, it's a form of death. Is it not, brothers and sisters? It's a form of death. The old man dies. And then if you think about it, you're buried for a period of time, so you're underneath the water. And when we rise back up, when we come up after a few seconds uh, out of the water, what happens? A new creation, a new creature in Christ Jesus. So this is a form of resurrection. So we can see the comparison, the correlation between the, the, the death burial, and resurrection of our Lord and what we go through when we make that decision to get baptized. We die in terms of, once again, removing sin out of our lives. We repent of our sins. We go under the water, which is a form of burial, and when we come up, we are a new creature in Christ Jesus. And then, of course, there's a process of the laying on of hands and the giving of the Holy Spirit and whatnot. But we are buried with Jesus in baptism. That's significant. We are buried with him in baptism. Now, as I begin to wind down, this is what I want to leave you with. As I said, the Passover season, which most of us are well aware, is coming up in less than a month. I just want to see how much of the ball you guys are. How many days uh, till, till Passover? Anybody know off the top of their head? How many? You're good, 26, very nice, very nice, you get a prize. <laughs> 26 days till Passover. So as we go through the process, brothers and sisters, of preparing for the Passover season, both the physical preparation and, of course, more importantly, the spiritual preparation, I do encourage each and every one of us to take time to consider, once again, the death, the resurrection, and what we just highlighted today, the burial. So the death, the burial, and resurrection of our Lord. So 
Point number one, once again, was the confirmation of death. The second point, fulfillment of prophecy. And the third point, we are buried with him in baptism. Now, as I wind down, I want to leave you with, once again, as we said, there's 26 days between now and the Passover season. So I do want to leave you with a little bit of a, a checklist of things that, you know, I would just encourage each and every one of us to do as we prepare for the Passover season. Because oftentimes, I know we live busy lives, whether it's work or school or whatever other extracurricular activities, whatever it is we do, and then sometimes we could look at the calendar and, oh, Passover is two days away, or Passover is tomorrow, and this and that, and we haven't done certain things that we should do, and we do have time to do those things. So it's just a very quick um, Passover slash unleavened bread preparation checklist. Uh, these are just things that um, you know, I've practiced in my house, uh, my wife and I, over the last few years. And I'm sure most of you do this already, but I'll share it with you anyway. Uh, point number one is to remove all leaven from our homes before Passover. So to remove all leaven from our homes before Passover. So as we know, brothers and sisters, we do have that 24-hour window between Passover and, of course, the first day of unleavened bread, where, you know, we technically can, um, you know, if we want, you know, consume uh, leaven products and, you know, we could still clean up certain last-minute things in our house. But we've always found that it's a good practice, you know, and it just even from a mental standpoint, just putting your spirit at ease before the actual, you know, Passover service, the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the wine, um, to have your homes actually deleavened before that. And then you don't have to worry about anything during that 24-hour period. And you can actually just focus on preparing yourself spirit mentally and, of course, more importantly, spiritually for what will take place, the Passover service. So once again, these are just some uh, suggestions that you can uh, take note of. Remove all leaven from our homes before uh, the Passover service. Secondly, to diligently search through ingredients of all products that we purchase. So beginning now, if we haven't done so already, once again, Passover is 26 days away. We should right now, brothers and sisters, be watching what we're purchasing when we do our groceries. Because the last thing we want to do is put ourselves in a position or a situation where we're forced to, and this happens, you know, it happens to all of us, but hopefully if we kind of make note of this, we can uh, minimize it, where we're forced to throw away too many things, um, you know, right before the unleavened bread, right before the Passover season. So if we kind of make a note now in terms of, you know, okay, do I really need this much flour? Do I really need this much yeast? Do I need it at all or whatnot? If we start looking at ingredients and, and making note even now of where things strategically are in our home, and these are food products I'm talking about that would have leavening in it. As I said, we're less than a month away. These are things that we should be mindful of now uh, rather than waiting up until the last minute. The third point, and this is kind of directly connected to the second, is to have our matzos or, or whatever uh, form of unleavened bread uh, purchased a week, at least a week before the Passover. Now, I know that some persons bake their own unleavened bread and even during the Passover season, and nothing wrong with that at all. But for those that don't purchase or don't uh, prepare their own unleavened bread, that purchase uh, the little matzos, I can't tell you how many times, and this happens often in Toronto, I don't know <laughs> about here, where literally during the days of unleavened bread, you will have brethren coming up to you and asking you, you know, can I have some of your matzos or can you get me some matzos or this and that or whatnot. But we need to be prepared. And of course, and we will talk in a second about um, spiritually preparing for the Passover season. But from a physical standpoint, and I'll just bluntly uh, come on and say this, I do believe it's, it's unacceptable, if we can just talk uh, openly and bluntly, um, to, you know, in the middle of the days of unleavened bread, to not have your, your matzos or your un unleavened bread in place. So these are things that are in, in, even a little bit common sense that we should prepare for. So the point is that we should have our matzos purchased at least a week before. Does that make sense? Good suggestion. Very good. Now, the fourth point, and this is once again just a very quick unleavened bread uh, checklist, is prayer. 
prayer. And this is, of course, focusing on the spiritual side, which is the most important part of us preparing, brothers and sisters, for the Passover season. Passover, as we all know, is a time of deep reflection, meditation, and introspection. It's our annual renewal of our commitment to the way, to the one who died, who was buried, and was resurrected. So it's a time where not necessarily we, I mean, and some people do this, we'll make a list of all the bad things that we did over the course of the year and things that we want to improve and this and that. And if that's what you do, that's okay. Of course, it's a time where we should, uh, from an introspective standpoint, look deep and examine ourselves according to the scriptures and look at how do our lives compare to the ultimate our role model, which is Yeshua HaMashiach, the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. How are my interactions with my friends, my family members, people in the church? And sometimes it's not even just a matter of the things that we're not doing. So sometimes we'll, maybe during this time, we'll kind of beat ourselves up a little bit for some of the things that we do. And of course, you know, if we need to do that, then we do that. But sometimes it's not even so much the things that we don't do, but the things that we should actually be doing more of. So perhaps this is a time, brothers and sisters, for us to meditate on what is our prayer life like? How often do I pray? And I'm not just talking just, you know, regular prayer. I'm talking about deep, fervent prayer, getting on our knees, going into our prayer closet, and praying, praying for the brethren, praying for the body of Christ. How often do we do that? What about reading the scriptures? How much time compared to perhaps other things that we do in, once again, in our busy uh, life, how often do we spend not just, you know, reading the Bible, but actually studying the Bible, going deep into the scriptures, line upon line, and praying and asking God for inspiration to reveal his truths to us so that we can apply them in our daily lives. So this particular period between now and, of course, uh, the, the Passover, which you said is how many days? 26 days away. These are some of the things that we need to consider as we approach the Passover season. The psalmist said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be some wicked way in me and lead me into the way of everlasting. That, brothers and sisters, should be our prayer as we approach the Passover season. We should pray to God to search us, to search our hearts, to search our minds, to search our spirits, and to see if our lives are in line with His, if our ways, if our thoughts and our actions are in line with His, and see if there be some wicked way in me. Because sometimes, and I, talk, I spoke about this in a message I gave last week in London where I talked about hidden sins. Sometimes we do certain things and we have the best of intentions, but if we really match it up with Scripture and the will of God, it's completely off. But how will we know that if we don't ask God? We need to ask God to search us and to reveal certain things to us that we're not aware of. And this particular period, once again, brothers and sisters, as we approach the Passover season, is the perfect time for us to do so. As I kind of, you know, scout the room, I see a lot of young people in the front. I see even younger people in the back. And I see still young people in the middle. (laughs) Everybody's young. We're all young. (laughs) But all of us, you know, for me, for example, this will likely be my, just off the top of my head, perhaps either 15th or 16th Passover season. And it'll be a little different for me, of course, this year without my dad. Uh, it'll be the first uh, Passover uh, without him. In fact, the last few years, I would say probably the last five years, we've had kind of an intimate Passover service at my parents' house. 
And interestingly, last year, um, my dad, he was the one that would always conduct, you know, the service. He would conduct the Passover service. But as he was going through the process once again of, you know, slowing down and declining, you know, my mother last year, a couple of months before the Passover, she asked me if I would do it. And uh, it was quite an honor, of course, um, you know, conducting or leading a Passover service for the first time. And we had a great time. I believe we had about 25 or so persons there. There were some other families from CGI um, that live close within the Durham region area that were there. Um, as I said, as I look at the room and I see, you know, persons, different ages, different places, perhaps in, in our walk, some of you, this could be your 20th Passover season. It could be your 30th. Who knows? could be your first. The point of the matter is, let us make every effort, brothers and sisters, to make this Passover season a very spiritually rewarding season. Let us not so much, you know, beat ourselves up about, you know, things of the past and things that we've done. Of course, let's pray about them and let's ask God to continue to use us and continue to work out his way within us. But let's look forward. Let's renew our commitment to this way. Let's look forward as we dwell, as we meditate on the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord. Let's make this the most spiritually rewarding Passover season. Happy Passover to you all. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.